your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle Empire. Welcome to Off Tackle Empire, your home of the, uh, the, the, well, certainly not the weirdest football conference results of the season, but ones that we said were going to be stupid. This is, of course, your Big Ten podcast. I'm Steve Brunt. That's Andrew Krzyzewski. Uh We still haven't seen each other in a while because uh, it suddenly it's become very convenient to just not leave our houses anymore, and this is the kind of... Uh, we're, we're kind of going to start to regress ourselves into the into being the um, Plato's cave people. <laughs> well, you know, it's snowing tonight anyway, so who really wants to go outside? The hour, though, groweth late on the season, and our games dwindleth to five as the Axe and the Illibuck alike yield before the rolling plague. Well, let's start out by congrat <laughs> by with some. Well, let's first start off with a win fight try Brewster of the Week. And for me, it's going to be water because what are we doing here anymore? My God. Um, so Northwestern has locked up the Big Ten West by um, – First year cancellation, yes. <laughs> yeah, by, by Minnesota canceling their last two games. However, that means that actually the Big Ten is now settled. We can declare a football champion – with a 7-0 record, Northwestern can't catch them. Indiana can do 7-1 at best. Coronavirus, COVID-19, is your Big Ten champion with a 7-0 record uh, and surely more to come. Anyone who didn't see this undefeated record coming before the season probably is going to be you know, kicking themselves guilty of a little hindsight. is 2020 kind of mindset but yep seven games so far just in the conference we just mentioned of course that for this coming week northwestern minnesota is canceled we'll hold off on talking about that in much depth until we're actually talking about this week well let me just tell you that this we said this was going to be really stupid we said that the conference race was gonna and this is not to take anything away from presumptive west division champion northwestern they they won uh, all of their games against the West that they played so far. They we're going to take away from yeah, We're going to take plenty away from them when we talk about their game. <laughs> yeah, obviously, some. I mean, somebody was going to win. But the point is that the decisive moment was a COVID cancellation. We told you it was going to be like this. Yeah, and the about the only thing. Look, I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not still interested in watching my team, especially after last week's results. Especially, especially if we can get out of playing that Ohio State game somehow. <laughs> but really, from a big picture perspective, the only thing that's interesting to me at this point is the absolutely insane scenarios that are possible because of all the cancellations, because of various teams being ruled ineligible. So, contemplate for example, I mean, if Ohio State doesn't get both of their remaining games played, they are ineligible for the Big Ten championship. That would mean that the conference title because again northwestern's already locked up the west indiana is a strong second place in the east nobody can catch them so if ohio state's not going to the title game it's going to be northwestern and indiana for the big 10 title the two i don't know the exact but it's the two losingest programs at of whatever i don't know if it's power five or fbs or what apparently big 10 yeah they're one and two on that list i think uh, Indiana took over that mantle from Northwestern a few years ago because Fitzgerald stabilized them, but still, P2 losing his programs, I believe in FBS is the stat, but if not, then it, I can't, it, there's no way it's all Division One because there's so many like MAC teams that just get beat up every year, but anyway, those two programs playing for a division title is truly a sight to behold and an utterly bizarre, like, in a normal season, contemplate what it would take for those two teams to be the ones playing for the Big Ten title. Think about any, like, go back to any point in your football memory. Like, in 2015, does that make any sense? No. 2010, 2005, 2000. Like, you, you got to go back a ways to ever find a point where it makes sense. And really, I submit that there probably isn't one. I don't think there's a point in the historical record before now where you can think if I were to go back to that to that time and say, 
that one day Northwestern Indiana are going to play for a Big Ten championship, I think you'd be laughed at any time from, again, like I said, two or three years ago, back to when college football was started. Well, I mean, you could maybe argue in 1967 because Northwestern was only a few years removed from from reaching AP number one and Indiana was in the Rose Bowl. However, you'd also have to be ignoring the fact that uh, Northwestern chose not to empower Arab Harsagian. Uh, and he said that it was because they didn't want to be good at football because that would hurt them academically. Um, so he had, he had left and also forever consigned Northwestern to being Northwestern, not necessarily forever, but you know, certainly for a good for what he years. said about that well yeah well what he said about that was a guarantee you know kind of flies in the face of the idea that 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 would be believed so yeah i want to say 1967 but even then now you you have a hard time convincing me that northwestern didn't peak five years prior there is no more indiana thing than losing to your own former backup slash season savior and if i may i like to put in a prediction for the outcome of the Indiana Northwestern Big Ten Championship game, if it should happen, which is, as far as the score goes, uh, who cares? It like something something goofy will happen. But what's going to happen in that game is Northwestern will win, despite Peyton Ramsey completing twelve out of thirty-one passes and throwing three interceptions. There's no other way for Indiana's first conference championship appearance to go. That's just the way it is. Yep. So it goes. Couldn't exactly tell what those notes were through the mic. For a minute, it sounded like dust in the wind. Well, it's the only, it's the Indianaist way for anything to end, isn't it? It's for any, everything to kind of just be meaningless. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves and start talking about both hilarious possible Big Ten championship game combinations, because actually I, I don't believe there's anyone else in the East besides Indiana who could go. Even if Indiana lost these last two weeks, they have the head-to-heads over Maryland and Michigan State and Michigan. So there's nobody left that can catch them. In fact, wait, other than Ohio State, I believe they've swept the East. Yeah, they have. So Indiana's going if Ohio State can't play and Northwestern's already clinched their division. Before we get there, we'd be remiss not to go take a walk through the beef stock, you know, the beef footage of Nebraska cornfields and Iowa cornfields. And you know, who who really cares where the cornfield is? It's all the same. It's all just getting harvested. Because it's Black Friday, and that means we've got to see Nebraska. Stumble at the finish line against Iowa, as they did once again. 26-20 is the final. And although Iowa has now won this game six consecutive times, their last three wins have been, let me think, this was six last year. I think by a combined total of like 11 or 12 points the last three years. Yeah, Iowa's very good at Pat Fitzgeralding this one, which is to say, Win it by as small a margin as you can, as stupidly as possible. And as far as the actual flow, like there's there's only a couple of things you'd know about the flow of this game from our perspective. The first is, once again, Nebraska in a one-score game turned the ball over twice in the fourth quarter. And their their management of this quarterback situation earlier in the season kind of liked what Frost was doing because it's like, all right, in this in a season like this, if you're not still in contention for the division, which they weren't right away, they were out. You may as well play backups all over the place and find out what you've got. But when I say play backups, I don't mean alternate them every other drive so that neither of them gets any kind of rhythm going. <laughs> that's, that's 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 insane. Um, you're just doing more damage to both of these guys because they both know. Well. I'm not getting the next drive, but if the other guy comes in and leads a touchdown, then they might not play me again at all. I got to do something big and impressive right now. Right now, I got to make a play. It's just like, I can't imagine that's good for a quarterback's psyche or confidence or decision-making when he knows 
things. I've got to make a play right now or I might not get another chance. Like I, I just don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's always situations where you have two quarterbacks that may or may not be able to win you the game. And if you're going to, you got to let them get in the kind, you got to let them get settled here. So if you're going to take a guy out, it's got to be because you believe that the other guy may have a better chance of success, not because you want to send a message that, hey, you shouldn't have thrown that interception because he fucking knows. Um, but I mean, <laughs> but then, then you gotta be, you gotta be willing to leave your other guy in there for a couple of series, uh, you know, unless he just, unless he just, you know, plays you right out of the game in his first two appearances. Right. But as long as they're, they're not playing, you know, so badly that you can't possibly survive any more reps with your backup guy. You gotta, you gotta let these guys develop a rhythm. That's why I was, I, I said the same thing when they, and they just randomly put Isaiah Williams in for uh, a few plays and then took him out. And I'm thinking like, well, that doesn't really establish a, a, a rhythm. That doesn't, I mean, the defense is kind of just weathers a storm here. Uh, he doesn't get to, you know, show off what he can necessarily do. And I, I don't know. I mean, look, it's a delicate point, situation. You're basically just a toddler with a little toy, like car console in front of you. Like you're just hitting buttons to hit buttons. It's not doing anything. You're just hitting buttons. So speaking of quarterback situations, though, Austin, the fact that they've gone from 0-2 to 4-2 is going to be the fact that Spencer Petras really still looks like a problem for Iowa at quarterback. I get that they're winning. I get that his numbers are, are considerably better than they were at the beginning of the year, and how could they not be? He still has the look, though, of a guy who – I've never seen a quarterback panic so much in a clean pocket. Like this offensive line has gotten considerably better. You know, they've had a little bit of shuffling recently. They had a couple guys out at right tackle. So they're moving some things around, but it's not like he snaps the ball and there's two rushers in his face. No, like the pocket is shifting around him a little bit, but you just move in the pocket and he would have been fine. But he he's still got this sort of itchy trigger finger on him. Uh, you watch Iowa's offense, you can see where the weak link is here. Yeah, easily. And it's just like, he almost looks like a guy who has like David Carr syndrome or something. And it's impossible to understand because he didn't really have any substantial playing time last year. Like, this is his first season. He has mostly played with a good offensive line. He's got good weapons around him. It's It's confusing to me why he always looks so worried back there. And then, of course, you have the, the the dilemma that Iowa fans find themselves in with this guy is it's the Rex Grossman argument. I'm sure that all, all Iowa fans being uh, 10 years older than me and from the Chicago area, um, as all Iowa fans are, know exactly what I'm talking about. The Rex Grossman argument. Well, yeah, he's demonstrably ass, but we're winning games. How we're winning games, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with him. But he certainly is in the ball game when we win them. He certainly was there when we won. <laughs> right. Definitely participated. People are guilty of that with quarterbacks. You know, us us most of all at some at times, I think. But uh, oh, I'm gonna go on a tangent here. Every time I watch a game involving Tom Brady, they give up all they 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 always uh bring out all of these quarterback statistics such as quarterback win-loss record and fourth quarter comeback drives or whatever so so look if you're down 20 if your team is down by 25 points with 10 minutes left in the fourth quarter and you score four unanswered touchdowns uh only for your deep only for your special teams to give up a kick return with no time left for a touchdown that doesn't mean shit on the other hand if you come into the into the fourth quarter and you got first and goal on your opponent's five and you're down four points and you score a touchdown and your defense shuts them out the rest of the way fourth quarter comeback john elway shit right there <laughs> exactly I mean, so i just remember like you know in, in seasons where you know there well there was there was a season i think one of the first ones where aaron Rodgers started where it's like he had a ton of fourth quarter comebacks he just kept having to do them in the same game and didn't get 
the opportunity to do it again and lost. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And to to kind of close our loop here with Iowa and Nebraska, though, before we move too far afield, early in, well, when I say early in the game, this is mostly still in the first half. Nebraska was having some consistent problems in that their center couldn't snap the ball. And the way the broadcast booth described it and portrayed it was, we understand that uh, the center Jurgens has turf toe. So it's not much of an extrapolation from hearing that to think, oh man, you know, that's got it. It's a, a painful situation for any football player. But in the context of being a center where you have to brace yourself like that with one hand on the ball and then snap, it's got to make it very difficult to get a good snap off. Yeah, you can very clearly see how that's going. You can understand how that's going to affect him. Even if you don't you know, know all of the ins and outs of football, you know that the guy's a lineman and what everything that he's doing that's putting pressure on his toes is going to be hurting him. And <laughs> getting over the ball and snapping it is one of those things. But then after halftime, he got a lot better. I mean, look, it, it, I'm not saying like he had one or two Aaron snaps. They got to the point where they had to pull him from the game. They moved their right tackle over to center for a couple of drives. Things kind of stabilized. And then after halftime, Jurgens comes back at center and he looks much better. After the game, Frost indicated that there was some problems going on with you know, the other sideline clapping, throwing off the snap counter, or whatever. I'm paraphrasing him a little bit. Basically blamed the Iowa coaching staff for disconcerting signals from the sideline, insinuating that there probably should have been a flag thrown. And then saying, oh, we, we talked to the officials at the halftime and we got that taken care of. Frost, you damn liar. We know perfectly well that's not what happened. You and what we that. did was we what we did was we got on the phone with our officials and they're tremendous officials, some of the best in the business, mind you. And and what we did was we told them, we told them, hey, what's going on in this Iowa sideline is absolutely criminal. Absolutely. Probably one of the worst things that anybody's ever seen in a football game. And we got that on the phone with those refs, and those referees told, "Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, we'll, we'll, sir, oh, we'll take care of that right away." And then, and then that's exactly what happened. And we got in there, and we got that done. It had that kind of vibe to it. And it, <laughs> the obvious thing, by the way, is that it went in at halftime and gave him some kind of pain injection that let him get through the rest of the game. Like that's what happened. There's no question. And you ask any athlete who's ever played in a game like that above the high school level. They'll tell you, if you have a problem during the game, it's not at risk of further injury. It's just a matter of pain tolerance. They got something for you, trust me. So, The shades of Chris Sale uh, having a meltdown, accusing the Tigers of stealing signals with a guy in the outfield. And, <laughs> and the rest of the White Sox were just like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> no and that, and that, really, that really was Kirk Ferentz's reaction, where he's, where he's you know, being a little smarmy about it, but he's like, what is this? This is, So the thing is, of course, he doesn't exactly deny that his sideline was clapping, but he's like, look, this is football. Get over it. Um, it's just, it's the second time within the last month where some opposing coach wants to be sassy and grumpy about something Iowa's done. And because of how they choose to handle it in their press conference, I end up on Kirk Ferentz's side. This is weird and gross. I don't want to be on Kirk Ferentz's side. I feel like I'm going to get rabdo just by being close to him. So Big Ten West coaches, please stop with the theatrics. Nobody's going to give you any credit for making up some bullshit excuse about why you looked bad against Iowa. We understand credit that, to- you know, that's just how their football team plays. It's, a, it's an ugly Cro-Magnon style of football most of the time. If you have to get down in the muck with them, just own up to that. Don't make up excuses why a game against Iowa went a certain way because it doesn't come off well. Like, I don't know why these coaches feel the need to make excuses in 2020, but they do. So, uh, Credit to Lovey Smith when they took a 63-0 blowout loss with it had a, featured a fake fucking punt up 35-0. And he was asked about that, and he was just like, oh, there was a situation where the opponent might uh, might choose to do this, and we were not prepared for it. You know, didn't go, oh, this is disgraceful. It's just like, well, you, you wanted to stop him. You should have stopped him. Um, yeah, just kind of right. Kind of the shrug and sort of the inverse yeah. of the Miami football in the 80s thing. Like, if we didn't like it, we should have stopped him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one more thing about this game is that uh, 
Iowa finally, Iowa's coaching staff finally uh, is becoming the last horse to cross the finish line as far as realizing that Tyler Goodson is by far the best option to carry this offense. Uh, but for the <laughs> second week in a row, Nebraska just didn't hand the ball off to Wandale Robinson, even though he was having a lot of success uh, when he had the ball. They got him involved more in the passing game. I mean, so he only had, I think, like six or seven carries, but he did have nine catches. Nonetheless, though, I, he's the part of their offense that works best. I understand he's not an eyeback where you're going to have him pound it between the tackles 25 times a game. But if he's not getting 25 or so touches, you're leaving production on the field that your offense badly needs. I don't think oh, the quarterbacks combined for 17 carries and he got six. I mean, it's not really, you know, if, if you're talking about you do that read option thing to make the defense respect these options equally, well, shit, at a certain point, don't you just ignore Wandale Robinson because, like, eh, they're not going to give it to him. He's good. I don't know, man. Again, right. We understand this offense, and much like we talked about with Penn State, we know that the quarterback run is part of some of these offenses. But if you're so content, if you're so intent on establishing that as kind of the base threat, you'd never run the constraint, then the whole like the design does not work to its maximum effect. That's about all there is to say about that. So all right, we'll move on here. Indiana 27, Maryland 11. But what did it cost? Everything. <laughs> the most Pyrrhic victory of the season for certain. Um, of course, Michael Penix Jr., uh, what, what was his injury again? One ACL. Uh, that, that was what I figured. And he had been performing quite poorly before this point. But um, it was kind Indiana of a... Yeah, they were struggling on offense for most of the game. Yeah, it was a very meh effort on both sides of it for quarterback play. If one side got, well, Penix finished six for 19. Talia Tagovailoa finished 17 for 36 with three interceptions. Um, the, you know, the only offense that was able to be an, uh, effective uh, at any level was the rushing game from Indiana. And even that, just Tim Baldwin getting 6.6 yards per carry. Stevie Scott was getting 3.3, but punched it in for three touchdowns. Yeah, so this, if you're Tom Allen, despite losing your starting quarterback for the year, still I think an encouraging sign because Indiana's identity, I think even now, has really still been more about their passing game, especially at, at least on the offensive side of the ball. I guess you could argue that now really they have an identity as a defensive team. But their offensive game has still been all about the quarterback and the running backs, or the wide receivers rather. This tells you that they're capable of winning a game when their preferred game script isn't exactly working. Um, and that's going to be, that's important for them, not only in this game, but going forward. They obviously still have potentially incredible things in front of them this season. But moving forward, if they wanted to repeat the success next year, being able to win games in different ways, between this year and next, they're going to suddenly find themselves on par with Penn State and Ohio State for talent. So they need to continue winning games in various types of ways when they may or may not have their strengths working, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you know, they it's not like they haven't tried to get that running game going. It's just it's really difficult to establish, you know, a run first offense when you're not basically sold out. What, when you're not one either sold out for that culture from an offensive line perspective like Wisconsin or two getting five star talent at every position yeah there's that ohio state could just ohio state could probably have won every single game on its schedule this year except maybe full strength indiana uh, without attempting a single pass um i by the time not any, on any of your team figured that. out. We've had that by the time, before. By the time every team figured out that's what they were doing, they'd be down so much that it wouldn't matter. I completely disagree. They've played competitive games this year. Like, I, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole with you again. I get that they're good, and they're much better than anyone else in the conference. But really, like, Indiana played them within one score last week. Like, 
haven't. It's it's not what. You oh, that's why about. that's why I make the exception of of Indiana because I don't think they would have been able to do that to them, but they'd, they'd certainly be able to. If you took away the passing game and also COVID, then Indiana or then Ohio State is probably second, third best team in the East still. Um. It's such a preposterous. I, I don't know. I, it's it's. I don't know what to do with that. Because <laughs> it doesn't. It's not a helpful comparison for me. It's impossible to think of. I'm like, are you saying they're well, anyway? Where Indiana? Did, no. What are we talking about? Where Indiana did control this game was time of possession. Um, Thirty-six twenty-four. When the game has become a slog, passing is impossible, and but you have a lead. Early in the game, this is this is how you do it: is you just take care of the ball. Uh, they turned it over two fewer times than Maryland, and this is a uh, they they essentially they Northwesterned a win here, but did it way less ugly. Yeah, and the other thing you have to say about Indiana is their defense is never going to lose steam or momentum, and that is directly attributable to the head coach, who every time you see him in the pregame or the postgame or whatever. He's either yelling at his players in like the good way, or he is chastising you for not believing in his players. So uh, it's very easy to see how that kind of energy carries over. Because again, this Maryland team, after an opening week flop against Northwestern in their two other games, the offense looked quite good with Tungavailoa running it. But through three quarters here, they had three points on the board. Again, that's not because, you know, if you look at Indiana, how many of those guys do you think are going to the NFL from that defense? Taiwan Mullen, for sure. Probably Micah McFadden, maybe. I don't know if there's any others. I've got some guys who will get camp looks, but I don't think there's a first rounder on that te- on that defense. Yeah, this is the kind of program that, you know, that, that well, that, sh- that shitty teams that recruit shitty, like such as mine, like we always are telling ourselves on the message boards that that's the kind of team that we're going to be because the recruiting rankings don't suggest we can be any other type of team. But like, it's actually come true for Indiana because they've got a very, very, they got a coach that adds a lot of value to the players on the team. And we say this so many times, but it keeps being true. And not every coach in the conference is like that. No, not at all. And it's it's worth noting that I think it's probably harder to do it that way and get it right than it is to either set up your bag men or work area connections and talent rich areas. Or basically, it's it's harder to make it work that way than it is to just go and get the more obviously talented players. Like I, that's absolutely. I think that's, I think that's beyond doubt because there is always this strong positive correlation between recruiting success on the field. No, it's not a straight line. No, it's not true in every case. Most of the time, the better teams have piles of blue chip players. That's just the way it works. So to see another exception like this pop up is always very encouraging for the the rabble like us, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, and not to mention that Indiana's success has generated a little slightly elevated recruiting profile, but Speaking of blue chips, elevated recruiting profiles, big time programs, the most important game of the week, Penn State versus Michigan. <laughs> the blue chips went crunch, 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 and they are delicious with some bean salsa. Oh, man. Um, okay, so Penn State 27, Michigan 17. No naked lap for James Franklin. Good for him. Even, even given... Uh, the Penn State-ness of all of it. I wouldn't wish a winless season on anybody this year. It's been hard enough, right? So that's probably a good thing. Um, as far as what happened on the field. So the the way for Penn State winning this game is that, as we talked about, you know, as we've talked about all season, turnovers, right? They finally get a clean turnover sheet. They win by two scores. Now, their offense was a little bit less explosive than it usually is, but they kept but they got safe. some things to happen on the ground. Yeah, they kept things safe. They found, first of all, if you're Michigan, it can't be very encouraging that Penn State finally found a 
defensive front that they were able to establish a steady run game against, and it was you. Um, that's kind of all there is. To, I mean, I don't think there's much else to say for Penn State in terms of the results on the field. There's more to talk about with Michigan. They can, Penn State controlled this game from the second quarter on. Um, they, they went back and forth, but this is, you know, this really is what you call a typical boat race because essentially Michigan just could never catch up due to the wake that Penn State left behind them. They took a 10-point a lead uh, late in the second quarter and never never looked back. Um, Michigan guess, at one point cut it to three, but they never tied it up. Another thing you could say besides the turnover thing for Penn State is they finally got off to a good start. Um, they This was the first time they scored points on their opening drive this season with a 10-play, 75-yard touchdown drive. It, um, I want to say it was the first time they did not allow points on their opponent's first drive. I think I saw that floating around out there as well. So consider, by the way, those two facts in tandem. Think about those previous five games, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're always spotting your opponent points right out of the gate, it gets easy for kind of negative momentum to build for you. Nothing, it feels like nothing is going right. So for Michigan here, the story, as it usually is, justifiably so or not, is going to be with how the quarterbacks were handled. They give the start to Cade McNamara. And initially he looks okay. But in the second quarter, he gets hurt. And I don't, you know, I guess the appropriate term is he got injured. Everybody's hurt this time of year. I get that. It's a platitude about football. He was injured in the sense that his his pain, the hurt that he had, impacted his play in a visible and obvious way. He could not get the ball more than, I don't know, seven, ten yards down the field on a consistent basis. They finally eventually took him out, I believe, in the third quarter, and Harbaugh belched out something about Milton being hurt as well. He looked fine when they put him out there, physically at least. But they put McNamara back in, such that I would guess altogether between when the injury happened, the amount of time he was in there, he was probably playing about half of the total game time with a a bum shoulder. And the last time they took him out, his arms like dangling from his side like a pool noodle. He, He was not right. And they put him back in. And having gone through this, Fairly recently with my own team playing Brian Lewerke when he was hurt a couple years ago, and it was obvious, like, this is impacting him. He's not able to get the job done. You're not doing him any favors by letting him play through this pain. Take him out, and if you're scared to show us the backup because he's that unprepared, we need to know that about how how badly you've managed this situation, too. But it's like, it's, of- it's like playing an RPG, right? At some point, you're going to have to spend your turn healing, I get that you need to keep doing damage so that the opponent, so that you'll eventually defeat your opponent. But if you don't heal, if you don't spend a turn to heal, you're going to die. Yeah, and so that was a mystifying situation. I don't think it really would have changed the outcome, but I mean, consider how quickly Joe Milton went from being compared to Cam Newton and Pat Mahomes, not by people, not necessarily by his coaches. I understand it was other people sort of near and around the program who said those things. I'm not attributing that to Harbaugh or Gaddis or anybody. But those comparisons were out there. They were in the damn paper here in Detroit. That was a month and a half ago. Now, despite really not being injured that we've been able to tell, he has gone from being that to being a guy who can't kick a one-armed quarterback off the field. <laughs> I mean, that's how far and how fast he's fallen. Yet another next big thing at quarterback for Michigan who has crumbled to dust and faster than anyone else before him, I think. Although, you know what is... Maybe the, maybe the Wilton Spate era was shorter than this. I don't really remember. Well, the Wilton Spate era had more highlights for sure. They won more goddamn games. Um, a couple things here. One, um, you know what's quickly becoming the most baffling result of the season is Michigan blowing out Minnesota. Yes and no. Remember, Minnesota was missing a number of guys 
because of COVID. Uh, that was their first game without Dunlap and Falele. And it's true, Minnesota's offense continued to work pretty well, but also it was their first game with this very young defense they've got. I I got to believe then that if they were to play this week, that it would be canceled because of coronavirus. Minnesota would win. Well, sure. If they were able to get on the field, which they can't because Minnesota is not playing another game this year. If they were able to play, I think Minnesota probably wins by two or three scores. But that's just, I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a prisoner of the moment kind of thing. It's also would be unfair not to observe that Michigan has had pretty terrible injury luck this year. They're still missing three guys from their starting offensive line, or at least their projected starting line. Um, not quitty payback, so that's something. But now Giles Jackson is out too, and they have not used him appropriately on offense, but he's a big threat in the return game. Um, they had a muffed punt from his backup on punt returns, Mike Sainristel. So the guys that they're missing, it's clearly hurt them. But there's also the fact that this is year six. You've recruited pretty well on paper, but that's one of the things that people talk about. The problems with this program is like the recruiting. There's no overall recruiting strategy is the thing that people close to the team are always saying, which is baffling to me, but they just have this massive talent, but it's all like at certain spots, they're so deep. They can't play everybody like at running back at other spots, like defensive tackle, they don't have enough guys that fit the physical profile. And it's like, well, how did this happen? Who knows? But Jim Harbaugh has been in charge the whole time. So, so Jim Harbaugh is now he is, uh, he's playing all the classics from a former Michigan coach, but it's not the one that you think it is because well, you had a whole bunch of elite level recruiting that didn't seem to go anywhere. And you wondered like, hey, wait a second. Shouldn't we be adding value to these kids? And and now you have a thing where you've got a, a losing season, an embarrassing slog of a game against a mutually shitty Penn State team. Uh, and then a thing where everybody in the world thinks, wow, why did he put that quarterback back in? That quarterback is clearly hurt. This is irresponsible. Yeah, the the very last part of that isn't going to hold up to the same extent because I don't think the media here is ever going to turn on him the way they eventually did on Brady Hoke. And that was a good excuse. The Shane Morris thing was the face saving for everyone who covers that team. Decide now is the time to jump ship. We have an excuse to do it, even though we've wanted to for a while. I don't think I don't get that same vibe here. Um, it's not to say there's anybody defending him around here because how can you with the results that we're seeing? But there's not this urgency of we gotta get rid of this guy right now. He's a threat to the health and well-being of the players. Even though I think it's arguably as true in this case, we'll never know the details because we don't exactly have access to the medical information. Um, so I'm gonna transition out of here. I had a, a conversation with a uh, with a Michigan podcaster with the lovely Twitter handle Thick Stauskas. I just love that handle. You know how much I'm a sucker for thick puns. Yeah. And uh, it, it, I, I mentioned I mentioned that uh, we recorded the Off Tackle on Fire podcast for the week. We're sick of having to talk about what the fuck is going on with Michigan. Don't make us do it again. And he says, "Well, no, you guys love to hate Michigan. I listen to your podcast." And I said. No, we definitely do, but we keep having to hit the same exact points over and over and over, and it's becoming tiring. So, can you please make zero and six Penn State happen so we can laugh at that? The response there was, "Sorry, friendo, but we're going to have to lose this one to guarantee the dawn of the soup dynasty." <laughs> and of course, the reference there is if you're talking about a coaching search for Michigan, Iowa State's Matt Campbell appears to be our candidate. I'd rather, I mean. On the one hand, I grow on him because I still don't think they're going to fire him. Ward Manuel is going to call of the Bears or something and be like, do me the solid. And the guy will do it. Like, who is Ward Manuel to the Chicago Bears? I can't think. I don't think that we, I don't think you know exactly what I was saying. Because I was saying that Michigan's going to lose all the rest of their games unless they're going to get canceled. Uh, oh, and then Illinois will win their last two games. And then the Lions will hire Lovey Smith. I disagree. Here's what I think is more likely. I think the Lions will, they'll either hire like San Francisco's DC or maybe Eric Bieniemy's dumb enough to take this job instead of Houston or whatever. They'll get some NFL. Cause remember 
they, they ended up in this situation because they asked the NFL for help the last time they were replacing their GM. The NFL appointed some guy, I think Ernie Acorsi, who told them, who, you know, helped them do the search and they landed on Bob Quinn. And once they hired Bob Quinn, it was inevitable he was going to grab one of those Patriots assistants to come and be the head coach and kick out Jim Caldwell, whose last season here was nine and seven. Still going to be one of the more dumbfounding things of all time, but from that point, so that was all pre-med. I mean, that was basically because the NFL suggested it to him. I have to imagine they're going to do the same thing again because the Fords still don't know anything about running a football team. So unless they want to, I mean, remember, the last time they went out and made their own GM hire, they got themselves Matt Millen, okay? After that, <laughs> after that, Martin Mayhew was a guy that was in the building working for Millen, and they promoted him, and... I mean, he was all right. Like, he wasn't the worst GM they've ever had, obviously. Made playoff rosters. And then after that, they got Quinn. So it's been almost 20 years since they attempted to do a GM hire on their own. They're not going to do it now. They're going to end up with some vetted NFL guy. It's not going to be Lovey Smith. I do think is likely, though, is regardless of what, like, I don't think the Lions are relevant though you know Harbaugh's got school-age kids still I have to think the idea of not moving but getting out of the Michigan job probably appeals to him I think the most likely thing is he goes to the Bears and somehow makes them better and like watch him he'll be there for like four or five years and he'll like the Lions will beat him once like in that time he will dominate the Lions just to stick it the people in this area who wanted him gone like that's that i can't that's the most okay you're right that's absolutely what's gonna happen not not the most loins thing you've ever heard like come on come on you know that's what's gonna happen one (laughs) billion percent i'll get on record with that being my projection harbaugh to the bears i don't have an inside source or anything i'm not claiming that i know from people who know I'm just reading the tea leaves and i'm looking at the pattern of how this whole thing has gone or loins. Do you realize Michigan that... fans for the poor people who are both? Um, that's how this ends. In the in the last um, what was it? In the last I think sixty years of Bears Packers, uh, Jim Harbaugh is top three for Bears quarterbacks touchdowns against the Packers with nine. Oh my god! Oof. Um. Wait. I, gob stopping, man. All right. Kind of giddy, which is. Made- in front of the Bears and the Loins. Going on a positive note for you and get to the last game that we're actually going to talk about. From Oh, no, there's one more after this. <laughs> I feel a little bit responsible for this result because Ohio State was maybe going to cancel the game against Illinois. I thought, oh, Northwestern's going to at least like the games that then even if you have a rooting interest, by the time it's over or by the time you get to the fourth quarter, you're, you're just like, why am I watching this game? I don't even care who wins anymore. I just want it to be over. It's so stupid. What? This is ridiculous. I can't even, like, this is the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I just want to gouge out my eyes with a melon baller, right? Uh, And you're just, it's stupid, but in the way that's not fun to watch. And it's frustrated, it's frustrating to think about, and you hate yourself for watching it. Well, that describes this whole goddamn season perfectly, doesn't it? (laughs) This is a lot. This doesn't... uh, Regardless of what, like, well, look, there's the eye test. There's also the nose test, and that is, <laughs> did you get any Rutgers on you this year? They got some Rutgers on them. Michigan State still had some on them when they went to play, and they smeared it all over them. I'm gonna fight you about that when we talk about the Rutgers Purdue game because I'm pretty much ready to pick up a banner for Shiano at this point. But oh, absolutely. But but if you're if you're a college football playoff person, you probably have no idea what Rutgers record is. That's true. You probably have no concept of the fact that they've gotten better. I have glanced at the box score of them playing Ohio State and been a little concerned that the Buckeyes let them put points on the board. Like that's about the end of your information concerning Rutgers, though, as a member of the CFP committee. So to get into this game a little bit, um, it was as it was as brutal as you would think. There was a point in the game. Rocky Lombardi's passing line was two for eight for 95 yards and two touchdowns. <laughs> yeah. Through. Just unbelievable elite trolling by Rocky Lombardi. 
Yeah, because he's he's out there. He's like, oh man, I don't know, guys. I'm not even that good. At and then just a perfect deep ball to Jalen Ayo for his 75 yard touchdown. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. Uh, oh <laughs> man, I better I better just. Uh, I mean, I'm I probably shouldn't take a sack here. I'll just uh, screw it. I hope someone's downfield, you guys. Uh, uh, oh, is that a touchdown? Oh man, wow. <laughs> no, you know what? Like from now on, whenever he's in the pocket. I'm going to hear his thought process in my head in the voice of Morty from Morty. Just like, ah, oh, geez. <laughs> Guess hey, Andrew it. Marty made an appearance. Oops, sorry. ESPN decided to forget the fact that I've muted it the last five times I opened a tab there. Um, <laughs> he did make an appearance, and it was on an unsuccessful Wildcat play. Um, but like, yeah. There uh, were many unsuccessful Wildcat plays. Most of them, really. I mean, they they had some. Their first of all, their long run on the day was eight yards, but they still attempted thirty-seven carries. Now, again, that's not accounting for the sacks Peyton Ramsey took. I think there were five of those. Um, but still, it, all right. So, getting into the actual substance of this game a little bit more, Fitzgerald has no one to blame for this game but himself. He did this to himself specifically. He in the first quarter passed up a short field goal attempt to go for it on fourth down from the 18. They did not get it in a game that he had to have understood by them. Like, Oh, this is a live wire. We should handle this with a little bit of caution. More importantly though, outside of the specific play calling in a tacticals, in a, in a strategic situation, there was the tactics because after halftime, Northwestern gets the ball and on their first possession, they marched their, throwing on first down. They absolutely shred MSU's defense, specifically their linebackers and safeties in coverage. This time it was over the middle, but really, as long as you're not throwing at MSU's corners who are still decent in pass coverage, you can move the ball easily. Test their linebackers and safeties. You're going to find that your receivers and tight ends are perfectly up to the task. So they they marched on the field, get a quick 75-yard touchdown, and then they forget it to happen. Like it's just like washed away, like a sandcastle at high tide. They never went back to that kind of game script or rhythm again. They went back to trying to establish the run. How many times have we seen this? It's, you know, I spent the last two years tearing my hair out at D'Antonio trying to establish the run. This felt like it was Pat Fitzgerald dedicating this game to Mark D'Antonio or something. Well, Pat Fitzgerald, the thing is, he'd been up all night playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, so he <laughs> thought that if he if he did another drive with the exact same plays and stuff, that then the touchdown would only be worth four points because it was the second time that he'd done that in this run. <laughs> yeah, and then, of course, the last thing is, towards the end of the game, it, look, he's got not only does he have all the game film on Rocky Lombardi they've read previously, but he's seen the guy on the field, right? Like he, yes, he hit a couple of long balls and those were fun, but he was otherwise completing less than 50% of his passes. And then boy, did he ever just hand, I mean, he might as well have run up to Patty Fisher and handed him the ball on that interception. Oh my God. Yeah. That's, that's the thing is he's clearly still got that in him. I mean, it was better than the last couple games he played, but there's no threat of the pass being utilized by Michigan State towards the end of the game. They're running. First of all, that's the other thing is I got in a couple slap fights in the only colors game thread with people about this because they were shouting that MSU shouldn't be running the ball on first and second down so much. And I'm like, but it's finally working. Like, what do you mean they shouldn't be running the ball so much when they're actually finally getting yardage out of it? And granted, once in a while that play gets stopped on first or second down. But you know what happens if you throw the ball? Three out of five times in this game, it would have been incomplete. So that's also a burn down. Like I, I couldn't. I was like, I felt like I felt like Will Ferrell's character in Zoolander. I'm like, am I taking crazy pills here because they're four yards per carry in this game? People want to stop running the ball. I'm like, what do you mean we're yeah. running and it's working? Connor Hayward was getting four yards per carry in this game. Four yards per carry in this matchup is like you give him fifty carries. And that's that's accounting for the fact that that's not accounting for the fact that down the stretch, they gave him the ball a number of times with Northwestern selling out to stop the run. Like earlier in the game, he's getting like five and a half, six yards a carry. 
and people in this game thread are still like, no, can't run the ball on first down, too predictable, fire Jay Johnson. I'm like, you freaking idiots. Like for, for the better part of five years now, we've been desperate to find a run game that works. They finally somehow with this same offensive line against a good defensive front are getting movement and you want them to stop? What the hell is the matter with you people? And it just, that's over. It, look, the coaches stuck with it. It worked well enough that they ended up winning the game. I have no, I still have no idea how. Um, well, I'll tell you one thing. One of the key things was that they simply were not prepared for Rocky Lombardi to run the ball. And it's not clear why. Um, yeah, that's one true, of the worst things that you can do as a coaching staff in the year of our Lord 2020 is play a game, is coach a game in such a way that I then get excited about Illinois' upcoming matchup with your team. Because, you know, Iowa did a similar thing where, you know, they, um, they prove themselves like just vulnerable enough to that to that kind of offense, and that their and that their quarterback was well, basically that their quarterback was going to do the same type of things that Luke McCaffrey did against us. Now, Michigan State, Rocky Lombardi, ten carries for sixty-five yards, eleven for twenty-seven for one hundred sixty-seven, two touchdowns and a pick. Is that not the most Brandon Peters stat line you've ever heard in your life? Pretty close, pretty close. If it's not so, so yeah, I saw that stat line. And I thought, oh, oh, okay. If Brandon Peters remains healthy, we can absolutely win that one. Yeah, but again, that's that's assuming that for some reason they fail to account for that threat again. So, uh, this was one of the bigger surprise outcomes of the weekend. I think maybe it shouldn't have been. I mean, I think Northwestern going into this was like nine or an eleven or a thirteen point favorite, something like that. And there had been nothing from Michigan State really this season, even even if you think about the Michigan game. That was just an instance of facing the boss in the video game that's got one flashing red spot on it. It's like, oh, well, I guess I should shoot that. Uh, (laughs) Most of the other teams they've played don't have that. Northwestern on paper certainly did not have the flashing weak point that you just hit with the one special weapon and the fight's a walkthrough. Like... That kind of, and we saw against Indiana and Iowa teams that similarly did not have a glaring weakness. What Michigan State has looked like against good teams, and it, for this, this outcome was hugely surprising. I'll take it. I'm not going to work a gift horse in the mouth here. The only downside is if you were curious, as I was, about what Peyton Thorne or Theo Day or even Noah Kim, the other quarterbacks Michigan State has have done with a little more run on the field uh forget about that it's gonna be Lombardi the rest of the way unless he gets hurt or frankly has another game as bad as the Indiana and Iowa games because keep in mind he's had a couple of stinkers but he's also won them I mean he Mel Tucker has two upset wins over top 15 teams in his first season at Michigan State (laughs) given the circumstances he came in with I can't he's earned the right to go with whatever quarterback he wants. I'd really like to see what the other guys have, but we're not going to, this is Lombardi's team now. So that's about all there's left to say about it. All right. One more game for us to discuss here. Here's what's such an interesting thing is that, uh, Mel Tucker is 0 and 2 against unranked teams and 2 and 1 against ranked teams. Boy, that, <laughs> that's utterly bizarre. And so they have well again, we'll we'll postpone talk about that any further for the preview section. If they were if the schedule were to hold up as it stands right now, they obviously have a ranked team this weekend and an unranked team the week after that. It would be truly uh, like like head to the bunker stages of end days are upon us if Michigan State one plays Ohio State. That game is very unlikely to happen. But if they some if they pull a win out of that game, I I don't know what I didn't know what to do with myself after this win. No, I I can't even conceive of the circumstances where that would happen. That would that would be like again head to the shelters. So one game remains to talk about here, and it was the arguably the game of the week. 
Um, I mean, in ter- if you mean in terms of like quality watchability and everything, yes, because it's it's true. Although people will fight this notion, it is true that Rutgers is now an entertaining product. They are interesting to watch, much more so than they have been recently. And Purdue is always fun to watch. I mean, whether they win or lose, you know you're going to see some entertaining offense. You know, their defense is going to make a ton of big mistakes. And that held up here. The first and obvious thing that I know Purdue fans will wash out about is, okay, yes, the refs. The refs were bad. Another bad call that really, really hurt Purdue. This time, a furious targeting. I will point out that in this game, you got a little bit of compensation back for that because David Bell absolutely got away with offensive pass interference. And I forget, he got two touchdowns in this game, I think. So, oh, just the one. No, on his one touchdown catch, uh, he shoved off. That should have been OPI, which would have put you way back out of plausible touchdown range, really. So, yes, the targeting call was bad. You got some of it back. And that's about all we need to say about that. Now, We've talked about this a couple times before. We talked about it last week, and we talked about it when the hire was made. I think Jeff Brom made a really, really, really big mistake in hiring this defensive coordinator. We were not sure about it at the time. It felt like a bad idea at the time. It looks like a disaster. Um, Then went and got a lower-level assistant job with Oklahoma staff. They let him go. and before that, of course, he was the head coach at UConn before he went to Nebraska. They fired him. Mostly because, again, in two of those, he's working just as a defensive assistant. UConn, he was, that 2016 UConn defense was one of the worst. In fact, I think by most measures, it is the worst. Pretty wide margins in terms of on that three-year run to justify hiring him now. I need you to show, yes, good. Keep in mind, it's Notre Dame's defense. Like he has, he has, he Ryan Kelly. Like he is the most foul fruit of the Brian Kelly tree, if that makes. Sense. Imagine any of Kelly's other assists have had such a disastrous run of it. The staff. only good thing he's done was invent the civil conflict trophy. <laughs> That's true. That's going to end up being his lasting legacy too, if you think about it. Uh, but man, it's just. Bro. Like, you know, the thing is, when you're you're going to hire somebody that's been in this conference before, then the by far the most relevant stint to look at is when they were in this conference because they played against a lot of they play they coached against a lot of coaches that are still here. They coach against you know your peers now, and it was awful at Nebraska. Absolutely disastrous, and They're not I mean, only not only awful but also a locker room cancer. Yeah, the guy who tried to blame his players for not being able to understand his galaxy brain schemes. Like, that was this guy, and that was three years ago. And it's just, man. Uh. Well, I mean, and, and, and look, Purdue, it, Purdue, if not for two turnovers by Illinois inside their own 10-yard line, loses that game by virtue of giving up 450 total yards to Illinois' fourth-string quarterback with walk-ons playing on the offensive line. Yeah, no, I mean, let's... <laughs> they gave up 450 yards to yeah, Illinois. Again, two touchdowns they gave away against Illinois. If those are both on the board, they give up 38 to Illinois. They gave up 24 to I- or 20 to Iowa before they realized that Spencer Petras should not be throwing the ball. Even gave up 27 points to Northwestern, which, adjusting for Northwestern's offense, it's like giving up 50 to anyone else. I'm sorry, 472 yards to, to Illinois. And again... With a walk-on tight end uh, playing the whole game at guard, uh, and this ended up being, let me just check my math here. Yeah, that uh, that's just 18 yards less than Illinois got against Nebraska, which we all agree was just a horrible performance by them. Yeah, and like the other thing here, of course, is that Rutgers kind of unexpectedly, like I don't remember hearing anything about this last week, Oh, Vedral, their starting quarterback, didn't play. <laughs> they still racked up 37 yards, 37 points, uh, over 400 yards of offense. 
alternating Art Sitkowski, who we spent an entire season poking fun at because of how bad he was as a true freshman. Purdue's defense made Sitkowski and Johnny Lang and look like Chris Leak and Tim Tebow. Like it, it was, was this incredible. was this Greg Schiano and his coaching staff simply flexing on what few Rutgers doubters there remain by saying, "Hey, here's this guy who was a meme. Uh, we're gonna play him in a meaningful conference game." And yeah, nineteen you know, for twenty-eight, yeah. two touchdowns, no interceptions. And not huge yardage, but perfectly serviceable, efficient. Not only are we going to do that, but we're going to take this guy last year who was even worse than Sitkowski throwing the ball. He's going to hit all three of his passes for an average of almost 30 yards a pop, and he's going to get close to 100 yards on the ground against you. You're not going to be able to do anything about it. I mean, again, the guy's in there, and he's ba- he basically is just in there running the wildcat. He, he attempted three passes, and he's still got almost five yards of carry on the ground. It's just a preposterously bad defensive performance from Purdue. On the flip side, I brought this up in the Slack channel, and I expected some pushback, but I didn't really get it. I want Greg Schiano to win Coach of the Year. I think he absolutely deserves it. The only competitor for it in this point in my mind is Tom Allen. Tom Allen's probably going to get it because these types of awards usually go to teams that end up at the top of the table. But look, it, we've talked about this in the past. Coach of the Year is really just a proxy for Overachiever of the Year award, okay? And it's fair that there probably weren't many people who expected Indiana to be where they are at this point in the season. But I I would counter you with this, and this is the way you put it. Shiano created a football team where previously there was not a football team. Yeah. Um, what, what coaches coaching added the most value this year? I mean, okay. Was the Northwestern program really fairly indicated by last year's result? They were two years away from an eight and one conference record, and they had, you know, they, like it, the championship. Yeah, yeah. yeah last, players. Yeah, last year was not at all indicative of where their program is, of where their coaching is. They got in a new offensive coordinator, but that really hasn't been. It's not like they w- would have gone. You know, it's not like they would have lost uh, three quarters of their games had they not changed their offensive coordinator. Whereas Shiano, what, what things, what things has Shiano done that aren't exactly what you want to see in a rebuild? I mean, when you look at all the players that he brought in shit, they probably Purdue probably cruises away with that game. If Aaron Crookshank doesn't return a touchdown, a kick for a touchdown, once they get down by 10 in the fourth quarter, uh, they end up winning by a touchdown, and they scored 17 unanswered after that. Well, not after that, but that was the first of 17 unanswered. And and that was a player that that was that was all Chiano that did that. He's the guy who brought in all these transfers. He's the guy who has made a number of their returning players substantially better with him and the staff that he's hired. Again, consider- and Sikowski started and won a Big Ten game under his tutelage. That. that alone should be that's that alone is grounds enough for coach of the year in my mind. Or at least so he's you know. both brought in guys that have materially made the made the team better, and also his coaching staff has materially improved the dudes that they already have. Yeah, and you you talked about in the context of Northwestern, you mentioned you know where was this program really? Where was Rutgers before they hired Shiano? Well, I'm glad you asked, friends. So to put it in context, what Rutgers did in going winless in three out of four Big Ten football seasons, that hasn't been done since the dark ages of Northwestern. We're talking about 40 years ago. That was the last time a Big Ten team did this. Illinois didn't do it. Indiana didn't do it. Uh, you know, Purdue, of course, never did it under Hazel because they always had the Memorial Stadium Champagne to go to. Um, I'm looking for a a more apt comparison, uh, 2017 Kansas, um, and then, yeah, four, no, wait, no, Kansas won in 2014 and 2016, so let's see, you have to go back, and 2013, so you've got to go back farther in Kansas history to get, okay, so I think 2011 Kansas, 2012 Kansas, um, and then 2014 can no, holy shit. 
Um, <laughs> Rutgers did a worse thing than Kansas of the teens. Not even they had three winless conference seasons in four years. I think everybody gets the point with all these numbers that we're bringing up. Okay, we, we it's we're trying not to labor the point too much, but Giano came in. They were in program. Kansas territory. They were in Kansas territory. They were dead in the water. And not only were they in Kansas territory, but consider like in the Big Ten East, much more difficult ground to gain traction in than the Big 12, even with Oklahoma being pretty good. So I just, man, I will want, no, we, at the time they made the hire, you and I largely panned the Shiano, because look, this is a retread, right? It's the definition of a retread. And how often do retreads even get you back to their level of success the first time they had the job? Like that's pretty unusual, but for them, well, I so I shouldn't say that because obviously he hasn't succeeded to the level he did the first time he was here yet. But this is a very promising start. It's even though they're two and four, is there a fan base in the conference outside of Indiana that's more encouraged with the direction of their program right now? I don't. Think and yeah, so. when he was hired, we went meh. But every single move he's made since then, right? The returns were very. You know, everything that he has done since he took over the job has been like. Yeah, that, that should go into an award like this. This is the time I had give that award. win seven campaign in the Big Ten, and guess what? Dennis Green got Coach of the Year. That's like that's binding precedent, man. That's like McCullough versus Maryland shit right there. And look, Rutgers had a pretty good game against Maryland, so <laughs> I think the clear the precedent clearly applies here. Look at me lawyering when I'm off the clock. Source for Big Ten Talk, it's off tackle, Empire!